pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for the blessing of your word. We thank you that by the power of the Holy Spirit, it speaks truth to us. It exposes reality to us. It challenges these hearts of ours. So challenge us this morning. Challenge us with your truth. Challenge us with your authority. And challenge us with your grace. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you read through any of the four Gospels and you see their picture of Jesus, uh, you can't help but marvel at the way Jesus teaches, the way he tells a story. Uh, He's an amazing teacher, and he is particularly adept at taking everyday realities, taking scenes that were common in the first century world, and using those everyday scenes to teach rich spiritual truth. And, And what I find especially captivating is the way that Jesus told these stories. Often he would bring his, his audience into the world of the familiar, so he'd tell them a story about a farmer or a shepherd or a housewife. He'd bring them into the world of the familiar, and then he would blindside them with, with some unexpected, some shocking detail, and he'd use that shocking detail to bring them face-to-face with the truth. And the parable before us this morning is a great example of this. Jesus creates a scene of the familiar, a vineyard owner and his tenure, tenant farmers, and then he leads the audience into what we might call the land of the absurd. He, he tells how these tenants mutiny against the vineyard owner, how, how they cruelly beat and then they kill some of his servants. And then Jesus shows these tenants doing the most vile of acts. What do they do? They murder the owner's very own beloved son, the heir, and they toss his dead body out into the street to be food for scavengers. I mean, this is a shocking story. This is a shocking story. It is when we read it, and it would have been even more so when Jesus originally told it. But, but unlike so many uh, modern horror movies or modern stand-up comedians, this isn't just shock for shock's sake. Uh, Jesus' story here is meant to jolt his hearers into seeing reality. And the reality he wants his hearers to clearly see is the reality of God's authority. The reality of God's authority. Mark this down. God's authority is gracious, God's authority is patient, but God's authority is also final. God's authority is gracious, God's authority is patient, but God's authority is also final. That's what Jesus is teaching his hearers through this this story that he tells them, this shocking story. He is giving them a picture, a picture of God's gracious, patient, but final authority. But that's not all he is showing them here. You see, there's there's a a focal point in Jesus' story. And if we miss that focal point, if we overlook that focal point, we'll really miss the heart of Jesus' instruction here. Maybe the most important thing that Jesus wants his hearers to understand and Mark wants us as readers to grasp is that the culmination, uh, the zenith, the center of God's gracious, patient, and final authority is found in none other than the person and presence of his son. It's found in the person and presence of his son. It all comes together in Jesus. It all comes together in Jesus. God's gracious, patient, and final authority comes to a focal point in Jesus Christ. It comes to a focal point in Jesus Christ. That's what this fascinating and jarring story about a vineyard owner and these rebellious tenants, that's what it's here to teach us. God's authority is centered in his son. So let's begin unpacking this parable and really explore the richness of Jesus' teaching here. And as we do, let me start by just reminding you of the context for Jesus' parable, because context is important. Context is helpful. Um, You see, this isn't just some random parable. Mark introduces the parable, look at verse 1 there, by telling us Jesus began to speak to them in parables. But where is Jesus at when he's speaking these parables? And who, who's the them? 
Who is the audience that he's speaking to? Well, let's start with the where. Where is Jesus? As we've been talking about, actually, as for the last month as we've been working through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus at this point in Mark's Gospel is now in Jerusalem. Jesus is in Jerusalem. And by Mark's timeline, Jesus has now been in Jerusalem for three days. Three days. Day one, uh, he entered the city. Remember this? He entered the city to shouts of Hosanna. Everybody was hailing him, praising him as the saving king. But then Mark showed us Jesus entered the temple. And remember we said there was no shouts of Hosanna there at the temple. Instead, when Jesus comes to the temple, he is greeted by silence. Greeted with silence. And in that silence, Jesus stood there and assessed the temple. And then he left the city. And again, that was day one. Then on day two, remember this, things got a little, we'll say a little wild and crazy on day two. Remember there, Jesus cursed that fruitless fig tree. He cursed that fig tree for being all show, but no substance. And then Jesus showed us, I mean, then Mark showed us Jesus clearing out the temple. And, And Mark showed us Jesus clearing out the temple for the exact same reason. The temple had become just like that fig tree. All show, but no substance. I mean, the temple should be a place of what? Of worship, of prayer. But Mark tells us that the temple had instead become this, this money-making vehicle for the leadership of Israel. And so Jesus arrives, he clears the temple, and he calls them on what they have done. He calls them on what the temple has become. We saw this in chapter 11, verses 17. He said to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But he says, But you have made it a den of robbers. A den of robbers. So that was day two. Day two was not a calm, relaxing, sightseeing tour of Jerusalem. Uh, Day two was about Jesus the king coming and rendering his verdict regarding the heart of Israel and its leadership. Day one, day two, then came day three. And on day three, we saw pushback. Uh, The temple leadership begins to push back against Jesus. We talked about this last week, but a group from the Sanhedrin, which was Jerusalem's ruling council and, and those who were in charge of the temple, they come and they approach Jesus. And this group demands from Jesus, they demand to know, by what authority are you doing these things? They wanted to know, by what authority are you conducting yourself? Are you conducting your ministry? They wanted to see his credentials for tossing people out of the temple, his credentials for being entered into, the, welcomed into the city with these cries of Hosanna. They wanted to know his credentials for all the myriad of things that he had been doing in his ministry. But again, these guys, they weren't there just as simple, innocent credential checkers. They were there with an agenda. They had come to challenge Jesus and his authority. And with that initial challenge there in the end of chapter 11, a series of conflict stories starts here in the Gospel of Mark. Um, Chapter, ending in chapter 11 and then running all the way through chapter 12, Mark shows us a series of, of debates that Jesus is having with Israel's leadership. In chapter 11, again, you have the challenge from the Sanhedrin. And again, these guys were, were the rulers over Israel. These were the leaders over the nation. And they come and challenge Jesus. And then in chapter 12, you find Jesus being approached by several other groups. First, the Pharisees and the Herodians come to confront Jesus. And then you have... The, the Sadducees, and finally have the scribes. And, and like the Sanhedrin, each one of these groups that comes and approaches Jesus, they, they were very influential um, in Jewish life. They held a lot of sway with the people. These were the conservative and the liberal political parties, if you wanted to look at it that way. They were the, the lawyers. They were the rich and the powerful. They were the clergy and, and the businessmen. 
Um, what we see in these groups that approach Jesus is really cross-section of Israel's elite, of Israel's influential. These are the leaders of the nation. And the picture that Mark is giving us here in the end of chapter 11 and on through chapter 12 is of these leaders, all of these different leaders, in conflict with Jesus. They were all wave after wave coming to challenge Jesus. But in this parable, this parable that launches chapter 12, Jesus pushes back against them. Jesus pushes back against them. It's a pushback to their challenge. Now, now the group that he is directly addressing here is most likely uh, the representatives from the Sanhedrin that approached him there in the end of chapter 11. That's probably the them in verse 1. But I also think that Jesus, with this parable, is pushing back on all of Israel's leadership, on all of Israel's leadership. I think he's, by this parable, he's challenging all of them. And that's why I think Mark has placed this parable here in the middle of these series of conflicts. He's placed it here to help us understand. The parable here is really key to understanding the failure of Israel's leadership, specifically their failure in responding to Jesus. So that's the context. The location of this speaking in parables is the temple in Jerusalem, and the them in verse 1 refers to the religious leaders of Israel. Jesus is speaking this parable to Israel's leadership in the temple, in really the heart of Israel. So that's the context. Now let's start looking at the parable itself. And I want to begin by showing you that this parable teaches first what I'll call the gracious authority of God. It teaches the gracious authority of God. Jesus opens this parable by saying, a man planted a vineyard. But, but even when we read that, we've got to stop and ask the question, okay, what is that line describing? What is Jesus talking about here? How would his hearers have understood this parable that he's telling them? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to go back to the Old Testament. So take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5. And here, Isaiah is speaking to the nation of Judah, uh, God's people, and he sends them a message, and it's, a, it's really a warning here. Isaiah chapter 5, look at, <clears throat> look at how it opens. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Isaiah says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his what? His vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded only wild grapes. And the idea is here, he wanted cultivated grapes, grapes that you could use to make wine, but he didn't get those cultivated grapes. Instead, he got grapes that were sour. They were no good. They, weren't, they couldn't be used for making wine. Isaiah's message continues, verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I, when I looked for it to yield grapes, again, those cultivated grapes, those good grapes, why did it yield only wild ones? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. And then we have this. Who is this vineyard owner, and what is his vineyard? Look at verse 7. For the vineyard of who? The Lord of hosts is who? The house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. 
So here in the Old Testament, we have God pictured as this vineyard owner and his people pictured as a vineyard. And Isaiah uses this imagery to proclaim judgment coming upon the nation because of the state of the nation, the way they haven't produced what God desired them to produce, that, that godliness and that righteousness. Now, I bring this text up from Isaiah because I think this text from Isaiah is what would have come to mind uh, in the hearers of Jesus' parable. As they listened, I think this is what would have come to mind. They would have uh, understood, well, this is who the vine owner, the vineyard owner is. It's God. And this is who the vineyard is. It's God's people. It's interesting, Jesus is actually directly quoting part of Isaiah's message here in his parable. And, and that wouldn't have been lost on his hearers. They would have seen the obvious connection between Jesus' story and Isaiah chapter 5. Oh, this is talking about God and his people. But the interesting thing in both texts, in Isaiah 5 and in Jesus' parable, they both start off by emphasizing the gracious care of the vineyard owner. You saw that there in Isaiah 5, right? Let's go back to, to Mark 12 and look at it there. Just look at the grace of God that's emphasized in the opening of this parable. I mean, think about what God has done for this vineyard. Again, Jesus begins by saying, the man planted it. It seems like just such a short little thing, and we just want to read right over that. But that's, that's, don't, don't undersell that. That's quite a commitment to take on planting a vineyard. Uh, that was no easy task. In order to plant a vineyard, first, what do you think you need to do? You need to find some land, right? You need to find the right kind of land. Not any old soil will do. You've got to find the right kind of land. And then when you find the right kind of land, what do you got to do? You've got, well, you got to purchase the land. You've got to clear the land. And then what do you need to do? You need to plant. Yeah, you need to start digging it up and planting the vines, right? And you need to plant the right kind of vines. And, and then once you get the vines planted, this is one of the things I found interesting. It often took five years for those vines those, to start being producing the right kind of fruit. So you had all that work to do. Uh, the vineyard required constant irrigation. The land had to be tended. The weeds had to continually be removed. The vines had to be pruned. You had to keep the vineyard protected from the weather. You had to keep the vineyard protected from the animals. And in addition to all of this, again, this is another thing that I found in my study this week, you also, in that day and age, you needed to have an adjoining reed plantation so that you could have those reeds to use as supports for the vines. So they would plant a vineyard, and they would plant a reed plantation right next to it. So planting a vineyard, as one commentator explained it, was a significant capital investment. This wasn't like just planting a rose of peas or carrots in your backyard. Okay? This was a serious agricultural undertaking. And, and everybody listening to Jesus on that day when Jesus says, a man planted a vineyard, they would have understood that, that this was a serious undertaking. But as Jesus explains here, the, the vineyard owner had fully embraced this endeavor. Jesus explains that the man had put a fence around the vineyard. That was to keep out the destructive animals like, like foxes and, and to keep other harmful elements like crowds of people from coming trampling through the vineyard. The man dug a pit for a wine press. So he had things ready. He was ready for the vineyard to produce. He also built a tower that would have been used for additional protection for the vineyard and also would have been used to, to store things like, like the fruit of the harvest would have been stored in the tower. So Jesus shows us here, and just in these few short lines, uh, a picture of a well-maintained, well-prepared vineyard. And what he's showing us here, he's showing us a picture of God's gracious care. God's gracious care, his gracious authority in the lives of his people. Just like Isaiah explained in his song of the vineyard, God had prepared everything, right? Everything for his people so that they might produce a harvest, a harvest of godliness and obedience. And worship. Everything was prepared for that. 
So this parable opens with a picture of God's gracious care. And again, it reminds us, when we think about the authority of God, God is not a tyrant, is he? He is a gracious and good God, and his is a gracious and good authority. It's a gracious and good authority. But then Jesus adds in this additional element that wasn't there in Isaiah's song in the vineyard. He mentions those hired to work the vineyard. There in the end of verse 1, Jesus mentioned that this vineyard was leased to tenants, to tenant farmers. And again, this was very common in Palestine in those days. Uh, Landowners would entrust their vineyards to workers to sharecroppers who, who would live there and who would care for the vineyard. And again, maintaining a vineyard was a lot of work. So again, there was irrigation, there was regular fertilization of the vineyard, there was the daily care for the vines themselves, all the pruning, there was then the harvesting and the storing and the processing of grapes. So there was a lot of work to be done, and much of that was, work was given to tenant farmers. And they would serve as stewards under the landowner, the stewards of the vineyard. Now, here's the thing with these guys. They were brought in, and again, they were like sharecroppers, so they're given a portion of it. And although they get to enjoy some of that, and you know, they get some of those blessings, they weren't there primarily for themselves. These sharecroppers, these tenants, were there for for who? They were there for the good of the vineyard and and for the landowner, for the landowner. So they were there for the good of the vineyard, and they were there under the authority of the owner. And here in this parable, by mentioning these tenants, by adding in this element, watch what Jesus does here. Jesus begins to narrow the focus of this parable. Jesus has taken this idea from Isaiah 5, and, and he's folk, narrowed the focus from Israel in general, and he's narrowing it to Israel's leadership in particular, to Israel's leadership in particular. That's who these tenets that he mentions represent. They, they are a picture of Israel's leadership. They are the ones entrusted by God for the care and for the cultivation of the nation, for, for the godliness, the, the cultivation of godliness and obedience and worship in the nation. So the leadership... This is an important thing for leadership to remember. They're not there for themselves, right? Although they get to enjoy blessings, they're not there for themselves. They are there for who? Yeah, for the good of those they are serving and for the glory of God. So these leaders in Israel, they were there for the good of the nation and for the glory of God. That's why they're there. So Jesus begins this parable by painting a picture of God's gracious care for his people. And then he introduces these tenants. And then, as as we read, things start to get um, interesting here in this parable. Let's talk now about the patient authority of God. We talked about the gracious authority of God. Let's talk now about the patient authority of God. Jesus explains in verse 2 that when the season came, so the season to collect the fruit of the vineyard, the servants, a servant was sent to do that very thing. And it seems like a simple thing to do. Go get some of the fruit. And the expectation was that the servant would go. He would arrive at the vineyard. He would collect some of the harvest. He would leave some for for the tenants, for these sharecroppers, and then he would return to his master to the landover with some of the fruit of the harvest. And again, it seems pretty simple, right? Seems pretty simple, right? Go get some, leave some there for them, come back, bring it to me. Seems pretty simple. But what does Jesus say happened? Look at verse 3. The servant arrives with that expectation, I'm going to get some, I'm going to bring it back to the landowner. And what do the tenants do? They take him and they do what? Yeah, they take him and beat that servant. I came across this in a commentary by C.H. Dodd. He says, they attempt, they attempt to pay their rent in blows. That's what they are doing. They attempt to pay their rent. They abuse the service, and then Jesus says, what do they do? They sent him away how? Empty-handed. So these wicked, greedy servants want to do what? Want to keep it all, right? 
We're not going to give any of it. We want to keep it all for ourselves. So they send the servant back with only bruises to show for his trip. So let me, let me pause here for a moment and ask you this question. If you were the landowner and, and your servant came back, you sent him to go get some of the harvest, he came back empty-handed and he had been beaten and he was all bruised and bloody um, and it had happened at the hands of the tenants that you hired to work your land. Let me ask you this question. How would you respond to that? Yeah. Yeah, what might you do? They might call the authorities, right? Hey, let's get rid of these guys, right? Or maybe in that day and age, you'd marshal your forces, you'd gather all your servants, you'd arm everybody and say, hey, we're going to the vineyard, right? But probably uh, what we wouldn't do is allow those tenants to keep working that vineyard one more day, right? That, that would be the end of employment, right? You send one of my servants back bloodied and beaten with empty hands, and you're gone. That, that would be how most of us would respond, right? But look what happens in Jesus' story. In verse 4, what happens? Another servant is sent. And actually, in verses 4 and 5, we have numerous servants sent. The owner patiently keeps sending servants to gather the fruit of his harvest. He continues. I mean, this is amazing. He continues to allow these no-good farmers to work his vineyard. He is patient with them. But sadly, what do they do? They continue to abuse his patience, don't they? They treat every servant he sends shamefully. Jesus actually gives us a picture here of the escalating wickedness of these tenants. The first servant gets beaten and sent away empty-handed. Then in verse 4, what happens to the next servant? He's struck in the head. And then the text tells us that he is treated shamefully. Now, to treat someone shamefully in those days, that meant that you dishonored them. And then And in that culture, in the ancient Jewish culture, it was a shame and honor-based culture, much like the the Asian cultures. So this was a big thing to dishonor somebody. Now, how did they dishonor this particular servant? text doesn't tell us, but some of their practices were to shave off all or part of a guy's beard. That's that's big trouble right there. You do that. But to shave off somebody's beard or to take their clothes and send them back naked, you know? So the idea was... Public humiliation. Bring shame on them through public humiliation. And the point here is not only did they beat this next servant, but they publicly shamed him. You see, these tenants are making a mockery of the landowner by how they're treating his servants. They're making a mockery of the landowner by how they're treating the servants. But these guys don't stop with beatings and humiliation. In verse 5, Jesus says that things escalate to what? To murder. To murder. Eventually, these tenants start killing the servants. They start killing those who are being sent just, just to gather some fruit of the harvest. They start killing them. I mean, what Jesus is giving us here, and again, well, we have a tendency to just read these things and not really get the force of what's going on here. But what Jesus is showing us here is these tenants out of control. I mean, they're out of control. Not only are they beating people and shaming people, but they are actually killing people that are simply going there on behalf of the landowner to gather the harvest. These guys are out of control. He shows us their escalating wickedness, but notice what else he shows us. He also shows us the patient authority of God. The patient of, I mean, the landowner could have reacted violently after that first incident, right? And most of us would have said, that's good. Get rid of those guys, right? But this landowner doesn't. He patiently, patiently sends servant after servant after servant after servant. And this is a picture of God's patient authority over the nation of Israel. 
God's patient authority over his people. Most scholars agree that these servants represent the prophets of Israel. They're the prophets of Israel. All throughout the Old Testament, the prophets are described as the the servants of God. And God sent them time and time and time again to the leadership of Israel, calling them to repent, calling them to return to the covenant. But the tragic reality of Israel's history is that so often Israel rejected God's prophets. They rejected God's prophets. They wouldn't heed their words. Instead, they rejected God's servants, they beat God's servants, and they even killed God's servants. Go read about Elijah. Being, being driven out into the wilderness because who was after him? That painted woman, Jezebel, right? Ahab and Jezebel drive him into the wilderness. Or, or Jeremiah, remember Jeremiah thrown into that muddy cistern and he was left there to die? I mean, and they had to try to fish him out of that thing? Or about Isaiah, history tells us that Isaiah was stuffed into a log and that log was sawn in half under the order of wicked king Manasseh, the ruler of Judah. So the history of Israel is filled with the blood of the prophets, with the murder of the servants of God. Over in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, I don't have to turn there, but just listen to this and jot this reference down. Matthew 23, verse 37. After Jesus has pronounced a series of woes, of judgments against Israel's leadership, Jesus says this. Listen to what he says. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But you were not willing. You were not willing. And that is the same point Jesus is making here. Israel and the leadership continued to respond in violence towards God's messengers, towards his grace being sent to them. His grace being sent to them. And yet God continued to be patient with them. I mean, do you, do you see the goodness and the kindness of God being brought out here in this parable? I mean, the goodness and kindness of God's authority. It is a gracious authority. It is a patient authority. He, he, and, and here's the thing. He, wasn't, he isn't just this way towards Israel, right? He's this way with all of us, right? God is a patient God. He, he is lovingly patient with each and every one of us. And I mean, if we had time, we could just walk through each one of our stories and we could see over and over again, right? The grace of God the patience of God, the grace of God, the patience of God in our stories. That's what we see here with Israel. And then we come to this, the culmination of God's loving, gracious, patient authority is seen in what Jesus says next. Just as there is an escalation in the wickedness of these tenants, there is also an escalation in the grace and mercy of the owner of this vineyard. The owner of the the vineyard has one more to send, right? One more whom these tenants might listen to. One more they might respect. One more they might honor. Jesus says in verse 6, he had still one other. Who? A beloved son. And not just a son. A beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them saying what? They will respect my son. Surely they will respect my son. Let me ask you a question. As a reader at this point in the story, you have to be asking yourself, right? Aren't you thinking this? What in the world are you doing? Right? Why send your son? Why send your beloved son? I mean, up to this point, what have we seen from these tenants? Have they been good, upstanding fellows? No, they're bloodthirsty murderers, right? They have, they, they're completely wicked. They're completely vile. They have no regard for the owner. So after all of this beating and killing, why in the world would you send them anyone else, let alone your beloved son? Why would you send your beloved son? I imagine some of 
Jesus' own hearers were asking that same question as he got to this point in the story. But, but I think also many of them culturally knew why the son would be sent. You see, the son differed from the servants. The son differed from the servants, and he differed in that he had legal right to the vineyard. As commentator James Edwards explains, in sending the servants, the owner appealed to the integrity of the tenants, and they showed that they had how much integrity? None. But in sending his son, he appeals to the right of the law. For the son was the only person, save the vineyard owner himself, who possessed legal claim over the vineyard. See, the son is who? He's the heir, right? He's the heir. The vineyard, by law, belongs to him. It's his right. So as he arrives on the premises, he arrives as one who has authority over all of it, right? He's not just a servant. He's the son. And those listening to Jesus that day knew that culturally they would understood. Oh, that's what, yep, you got to send the son because the son's coming with authority. Now, as we think about this, we need to pause here for a moment. I just want to stand back and marvel at Jesus' own self-understanding. Jesus' own self-understanding. And think with me about Jesus here and, and what he's revealing about himself. I mean, who is the son in this story? Who's the son? It's Jesus, right? I mean, repeatedly through the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus identified this way. Remember, Mark's Gospel opened with this line. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of God. And then we got to the baptism there in chapter 1. And we heard the Father say, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. As we've gone through this book, we've heard the demons cry out in terror. Remember this? You are the Son of God. That's the way they've responded to Jesus. And then remember when we got to chapter 9. And we, along with three of Jesus' disciples, went up on the mountain and saw Jesus transfigured. And again, we heard the Father say what? This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So when we come to chapter 12, and we get to this parable, it's clear who the Son represents, right? That's Jesus. Jesus is the vineyard owner's beloved Son. But again, it's powerful that Jesus here identifies himself this way, that, that he so clearly, to the leaders that are gathered that day in the temple, that he so clearly identifies himself as the beloved son. I mean, think about it. Here he is standing in the temple revealing himself to be God's own unique son. He is making clear his authority. He is making clear his person. He is making clear his uniqueness. I mean, just think about in the story the way the son differs from the servant. One commentator writes this. He says, the servants are many, right? But the son, how many sons are there in the story? The son is unique. The servants are hirelings, perhaps even themselves property, but the son is the heir. The servants are the forerunners, but he, the son, and I love this, is the last and final word of the father. He's the last and final word of the father. See, Jesus makes clear through this parable that he isn't simply one more servant. He isn't simply one more prophet who has come to proclaim God's message to Israel. He is God's last word to them. He's God's last word to them. He is the beloved son. He is the heir who has come with absolute authority over the vineyard. Absolute authority over God's people. He is the culmination. He is the climax of God's gracious and patient authority over all of them. And I think that's the point that Jesus and Mark uh, are driving home here with this parable. God's gracious and patient authority reaches its climax in the person and the presence of his son reaches its zenith. It's centered in the person and presence of his son. He is the last word 
on God's authority. He is the climax of God's authority. But here's the thing. How will Israel's leadership, how will these tenets respond to the beloved son sent by the father? What does Jesus' story reveal? Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7 of the parable. But those tenants, <laughs> so the son is sent, but those tenants said to one another, what? This is the heir. Come let us, what? Kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. Now really think about what Jesus is saying here. Do these tenants recognize the son? Do they understand his authority? Yeah. Here comes the heir. They recognize it. So it wasn't an issue of, oh, sorry, we didn't know who this was. What are they after? What does the parable reveal? Let us kill him and what? The inheritance will be ours. Do you see the point Jesus is making here? He is saying that Israel's leadership at this point had become so wicked, so power-hungry, that they didn't just want the harvest for themselves. It wasn't, it wasn't simply enough for them to have the worship of men, the accolades of men, all those things that should have been going to God. No, now they want it all. They want the entire nation. They want the people of God for their own possession. They, they want to lay claim to an authority that they have no right to possess. They want to lay claim to an authority they have no right to possess. They have no right to it because what are they? They're just stewards, right? They're not the heir. They're not the heir. But in that quest for authority, um, Jesus shows us that their wickedness knows no bounds. He explains that, that their sinful hearts will lead them to treat the beloved son like garbage, like trash. Look at verse 8. And they took him and killed him, and then what did they do? They threw him out of the vineyard. The beloved son, the true heir, they kill and they throw him into the streets. They throw him into the streets. That's the idea of they threw Jesus out of the vineyard. It was the ultimate sign of disrespect to leave a body unburied so that the scavenging birds or dogs would come and pick at it. And that's the idea here. I mean, in this scene, when you think about it, the wickedness of these tenants is so shocking. It's so shocking. I mean, who would dare to do such a thing? I mean, who would treat authority this way? Throw the body into the street. Leave it for the dogs. Who would treat authority this way? You ready for this? You ready for this? We would. That's who. We would. Maybe the most shocking part of this entire parable is the way that it reveals, it reflects the reality of our own sinful human hearts. The reality of our own sinful human hearts. I mean, these wicked tenants refuse to be ruled. That's what we're seeing here. They refused to be ruled. It didn't matter what the vineyard owner did. It didn't matter if he was gracious. It didn't matter if he was patient. It didn't matter if he even sent his very own beloved son. They simply refused to be ruled. They refused to be ruled. And this is sadly the reality of every sinful human heart. We want to rule ourselves. We want to rule ourselves. As I said last week when we were starting the series on authority, we want what we want, when we want it, and we don't want to be told no. Right? We want what we want, when we want it, we don't want to be told no. And it doesn't matter how gracious or patient God is with us, or that he even sent his only son. Oh, we're okay if it gets us out of hell, but he better not tell us what to do. I'm just being blunt with you this morning. Jesus' parable 
strikes not only at the heart of Israel's sinful leadership, but it strikes at every sinful heart that has spurned the law of God. As one commentator put it, if the farmers kill the heir, they reason they will become the heirs. In the same way, humanity reasons. If we can dispense with God, if we can kill God, then we can become God. Right? Isn't that what we see? I mean, I'm not going to take the time to walk through all the things that go on in our everyday lives, but there are a myriad of ways that we are trying to get up on the throne. Amen? That same commentator continues. He says, What is the sum total of human history if not an attempt to rid the universe of God? Maybe that's a bleak way to paint the picture, but it's also the reality of the wicked desires of our sinful human heart. We want to be in charge. We want to be on the throne. And here's the thing. Without God's transforming grace, I mean, praise God for his work in our hearts. Without the Spirit of God coming and taking these hearts of stone and making them hearts of flesh, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear, without that, we'd be just like these vile farmers. We'd be just like these wicked tenants. That's the reality of sinful, fallen, rebellious man, our human hearts. But the humbling truth uh, that our sinful hearts, that the sinful heart of man tries to ignore, um, that those who think they can get rid of God foolishly disregard, is that though God's authority is gracious and patient, it is also he is also the final authority. God is the final authority. We, we try to ignore that, right? And we look around our culture, people just want to carry on however they want to carry on, right? But God, although he is gracious and he is patient, amen? He is also the final authority. He is the final authority. In verse 9, we come to what I see as the question of this parable. The question. Look at it. What will the owner of the vineyard do? What will the owner of the vineyard do? Let that question sink in. I mean, really feel the force of that question. Let it, let it make you tremble a little bit. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Look at how you've been. What will the owner of the vineyard do? I mean, think about this. Jesus looks these guys right in the eyeballs, and he says to them what? Do you really think you'll be allowed to continue to play God? Do you really think that you can destroy the air and lay claim to the kingdom and God will just stand by and ignore that? Do you really think that God will allow you to do that? What will the owner of the vineyard do? I wonder if those men standing there listening to that question swallowed hard at that point. They realized what Jesus was driving at. I mean, he's hitting them. He's pushing back, right? With both barrels. Again, I tease about this from time to time, but this isn't gentle Jesus, meek and mild, right? I mean, he's going right at them. What will the owner of the vineyard do? But again, this isn't just a question for those men standing there that day that that were there in the temple. It, It is really a question for every human heart, isn't it? It's a question for every human heart. Do you really think that God will stand by and allow us to just continue to act like we're the ultimate authority? Do you really think God will just stand by and let that happen? Do you really truly believe that we can carry on any old way we like and spurn the salvation of the Lord and, and, and his grace and his mercy and that God will simply ignore that? Do, do you honestly imagine that we can continue to lay claim to the gracious and wonderful blessings of God but never render obedience and honor to his son and God will just ignore that? What will the owner of the vineyard do? 
I mean, Jesus raises here the key question, right? The key question. And then look at the text. He answers that question, and he answers it definitively. What he shows us here is the frightening reality that there is an end to the patience and grace of God. It's hard even to say that. It's frankly hard to hear it, but it's reality, isn't it? There is an end. There is an end to the grace and patience of God. Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? What will he do? He will what? Come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Please don't miss this. This is so important. Please don't miss this. The linchpin in this entire thing is how the tenants responded to the son. The linchpin in the entire thing is how the tenants responded to the, th- to the son. Jesus' point and Mark's point is that Jesus Christ is the end. He is the climax. He is the final word of God's grace and his patience. And if you reject the son, what hope do you have? What hope do you have? I mean, the scripture is really clear on this, right? There is salvation in none other, right? There, there isn't another one being sent by the Father, right? Jesus is it. Jesus is the last word. Jesus is the climax. And if our sinful hearts reject Jesus, you're ultimately rejecting God's grace. And you've brought yourself to the end of his patience. If you continue to re- reject Jesus... What else is there? What else is there? See, there is no hope. There is no way of salvation if you continue to reject the Son. If you continue to reject the Son. That, that's the point that Jesus is making to these leaders. He's, he's lovingly, graciously, but sternly warn, warning them. You've had all these servants, all these prophets, and look how you treated them. And now here he is, the son. And this is it. If you reject the son, judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. That's the point he's making to these leaders, but they refuse to listen. Tragically, they continue on their path, and you see it here in the end of this text, but... They're so afraid of losing control, their control, their little kingdom. So afraid of the people instead of afraid of God. So having that godly fear. They're so afraid of man that they will continue to reject Jesus and God will destroy them. What happens, history tells us, is that they lost their power. They lost their authority. They lost their position in the nation. We talked about this 80, 70 uh, Romans come in and completely wipe out Jerusalem and destroy the temple. These guys are, are no more. God judges them. And you have to wonder, I mean, I don't know about the course of all of their, their souls, but if they continue to reject Jesus, what else do they have? You know, they'd be cast away from the presence of God, the Father, forever. Forever away from his patience, forever away from his grace because of the way they responded to Jesus. That's the linchpin here, is Jesus. How do you respond to Jesus? One last thing I want to hit on, and then I'll, I'll wrap it up for this morning. I have this scene, and again, as you really start to understand what's going on here, there's a darkness in, in the scene. I mean, it's a shocking scene. A scene of people's wickedness and sinfulness, and their continual mocking of God's grace and his patience, and then it ends with 
God's judgment of them. It's, it's a shocking and difficult scene. But Jesus ends this lesson, make sure you take note of this, with a great word of triumph. He ends it with a great word of triumph. Now, all of the wickedness of man, man's rebellious heart, these rulers' rejection of the Son of God, did that thwart God's plan? Did, did somehow that mess up God's program? You know, like God was like, please, I hope you respond to this one. I hope you respond to this one. I hope, you know, or my plan's not going to work. Did it thwart God's plan? Look at what Jesus says in verses 10 and 11. He speaks about their judgment, and then he says this. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become what? The cornerstone. And then note this. You might want to underline this. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. As we continue on in the Gospel of Mark, and we will watch these leaders reject Jesus, what he has spoke about in this, in this parable will become a reality. We'll watch them reject Jesus. We'll watch them beat Jesus. We'll watch them spit upon Jesus. We'll watch them condemn Jesus. We will watch them drag Jesus outside of the city, outside of the vineyard, as it were, and crucify him. And then toss his body in the grave and seal it up. As we watch all that takes place, guess what? They don't win. They don't win. All of that wickedness and all of that vileness doesn't change, doesn't alter God's plan one iota. Why? Why? This is awesome. Because God is the ultimate authority, not man, right? God is the ultimate authority. He is the true authority. He is the final authority. And his plan cannot be thwarted no matter what sinful hearts might try to do. His plan cannot be thwarted. Jesus reveals here that he... He is the stone that the builders, the leaders, rejected. They will reject him and they will bury him. But on the third day, that rejected stone will be raised up and become the cornerstone. He will take his rightful place as the heir of the vineyard, the true king of God's people. And this was the Lord's doing. And it was marvelous in our eyes. It's marvelous in our eyes. The authority of God is gracious and patient and final. His purpose centered in his son will be accomplished. So as I close, let me just ask you this question. Seen these guys in this story, talked about the scene there. Let me ask you this question. How are you in your life responding to the authority of God? Again, I like to say it this way. Not how are the people in your family responding to the authority of God or how was that neighbor or your coworker? Or, but you, take, take a moment and just think about your life. Look at your life. How are you responding to the authority of God? Are you daily celebrating and delighting in the grace of God? Or are you spurning it? Are you thankful for his patience with you? Or are you taking advantage of it? I think the best way, as I was thinking about this, the best way to really answer this question, how am I responding to God's authority, is to ask yourself, how am I responding to Christ? How am I responding to Christ? Is he truly your Savior and Lord? Do you, do you live daily celebrating? I mean, really celebrating his saving grace. We get caught up in excitement about all kinds of other stuff, right? We have been saved eternally. Is that something to be excited about? So are we daily celebrating that grace? Do we walk moment by moment resting in his righteousness?
Do you realize that your standing before God is not based on you and your effort? What is it based upon? It's based upon the righteousness of Christ. By faith we are justified. We're clothed with the righteousness. So do you live every day resting in that? Is that what your life is about? Rejoicing in, trusting in, not being anxious, but really resting in God? Or is your life all about you? What can I do? How can I control this situation? You know, and on and on we go. I mean, how are you responding to Christ? That's really the question. For Christ and Christ alone, that's the focal point. He is the focal point of God's gracious, patient, and final authority. How we respond to him reveals how we respond to God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we, we need the ministry of your spirit. As we hear these things, not to slough off these things, not to ignore these things, not to quickly dismiss them and say, yeah, I'm good. But we need the ministry of your spirit to really take this truth and drive it into our hearts. Really challenge us. Challenge us to behold your authority. Let us rejoice in the reality that you are gracious. Everything we need, you've provided. Let us rejoice in that. Let us rejoice in your patience with us. How so many moments in our life uh, we have been so rebellious and you had every right just to be rid of us forever. But you're patient. But help us also understand that your authority is final. You are on the throne, not us. And help us to see truly that all these things are centered in your son. That Jesus is your last word. Jesus is the climax of your authority and your grace. And it is him and him alone we need to embrace. May we truly be people who rejoice in our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ that we walk daily in obedience, joyful obedience to the one who is the true heir of the vineyard, the true king of your people. These things we pray in his name. Amen.